Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Uh, nearly two-thirds of Americans say they're afraid to talk about some of their beliefs because of the current political climate. Both conservatives and liberals say they censor themselves so as not to offend others or to avoid possible consequences for their jobs and social lives. Our country may be the only one with the First Amendment, but is speech becoming less free? Ellis Coase joins us now to discuss his latest book, The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America, just out from Amistad HarperCollins. And it is with great pleasure that I welcome him back to our show. Hi, Ellis. Hey, Leonard. Uh, great to be with you. And, and I totally sympathize with the technical <laughs> issues due to having to uh, work from home. How are you? Yes. I'm seeing similar things happening uh, on uh, some of the TV shows, so I guess I shouldn't take it personally. Um, now, we all uh, we all probably are familiar with the text of the First Amendment, but it may be a good idea for uh, you to remind us what it is before we get this conversation going. Oh, sure. Um, the First Amendment in the Constitution is part of the Bill of Rights, and it guarantees Americans the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, the, the freedom to petition the government. And it's essentially um, our guarantee against a dictatorship that freezes our right to dissent. So, so it's the, it, it's, it was not officially part of the, of the Constitution in the beginning it be, because it was an amendment. It was ratified uh, in 1791, a couple years after the Constitution itself. Um, but it's been at least on paper with us for a very long time. Although uh, it has, it's been kind of ignored at times, starting off with the Alien and Sedition Act. Yeah, I mean, a few years after we um, passed the First Amendment, we decided that we were afraid of, of perhaps incursions from, from France. Yeah, we, we, we were afraid of being drawn into a war originating in Europe, you know, and so we passed uh, severe restrictions on speech. Um, the Federalists were then in control of the government. It essentially became against the law to uh, criticize the other Federalists, and there were several several cases that went to court. People went to prison for essentially voicing their opinion, and, and, and we've seen that repeated throughout history. Um, and and, mm -hmm. and most um, sort of famously, I guess, during World War One, where you had thousands of people, literally thousands of people, yeah, who went to uh, to prison for speaking out against uh, the U.S. involvement in the war, speaking out against the draft. Uh, you had the uh, a, a huge trial of the IWW Union, the Industrial Workers of the World Union, known as the Wobblies, yeah, where they tried um, um, over a hundred uh, members of that uh, union at one time in a courtroom in Chicago, basically for being against the war. And so even though the First Amendment has been on the books, um, in a manner of speaking, uh, since 1791, it's only really been recognized in uh, since the 20th century and then in the, the early and middle part of the 20th century. It was, was when you had what is now First Amendment doctrine, which began to be developed. 
But even uh, but over the years, uh, the targets have ranged from abolitionists. Ida B. Wells was a target at one point. Cross burnings, communists. You quote law professor Thomas Healy as saying, despite its centrality to our culture today, the First Amendment in the early 20th century was largely a dead letter. The Supreme Court had never upheld a free speech claim and lower courts had approved the censorship of books and films, the prohibition of street corner speeches and bans on labor protests and profanity. So yeah. how and when did the First Amendment become more important to public life in this country? Well, well let's, let's go back, because you mentioned abolitionists, and, let, and let's just go back for a second. Um, because in the 1800s, um, the First Amendment didn't even apply to the states. So at that time, it was, it was simply applied to the federal government. Mm-hmm. So at that time, um, states you know had outlawed um, abolitionist literature you know in in many states and most most southern states yeah you know, and as a consequence you could be you could be flogged you could be thrown in jail uh, for advocating abolition you know, in those in those states um, and the idea that the states were bound by that didn't really come along until 1925. It was a a case um, called Gitlow, um, and then it, and it basically was a case that revolved around a couple of of men who were um, acknowledged communists, yeah, you know, who who published in a newspaper some kind of manifesto, uh, and they claimed that they did, they were not aware because it was an advert, it was an advertisement that the ad was even there, but they ended up being taken to court and in violation at that point of New York state laws. You know, and um, they ended up getting convicted, and they appealed to the Supreme Court, um, which, interestingly enough, did upheld the conviction, but also ruled for the first time that the First Amendment did apply to the state. So all of a sudden, all of the, you, had, you had all of these state laws that silenced speech or, or that made speech much more difficult. And at, so at that point, you had the, the beginning of, uh, of the um, rethinking mm-hmm. of how broad free speech should apply. But in, but in answer to your original question of when did it begin to to become um, sort of accepted doctrine, uh, it was gradually uh, over over the the decades um, beginning after the First World War, when the um, so the the ACLU and several other organizations brought in a number of cases. Um, one of the more famous ones uh, was a case um, that came from California. A, a woman named Whitney, uh, Charlotte Whitney, who was a socialite who became a socialist and then a communist um, and was essentially arrested and convicted of violating what they called the syndication laws in that time, which was, which was organizing against the government. And, and all that really, and, and that was a state law at the time, but all, but all that it required to organize against the government was to join the Communist Party from their perspective. So she was essentially prosecuted for being a member of the of the Communist Party, and she was convicted, and that went to the Supreme Court. And interestingly enough, uh, the Supreme Court again, you know, upheld her conviction. But at the, but but they also, or I should say, uh, in the the concurrence in that opinion, uh, Louis Brandeis, you know, joined by Oliver Wendell Holmes, made a very articulate. 
uh, defense of free speech, why he decided she should be convicted is beyond me. Because <laughs> reading, reading that dissent, you would think he would have come out on the other side. But he, at that, that, you know, as, as far as going back to where, when... Wait, but I want to just interrupt and say, you sure. say that Brandeis had a naive idealism. So did uh, that play well, a role in all of this? Well, I don't think it played a role in his deciding to convict this, this woman mm-hmm. or, or uphold the conviction of the woman. But, but, I, but I think he was, um, when, when I say he had a naive idea, his, his idea, and he articulated it in, in several decisions, but the most famous one, as I said, was, was that one from, from 1927, was he basically argued that the reason for free speech and the justification for free speech was that in the combat of ideas, you needed to have speech because because ultimately good speech would triumph over bad speech, that good ideas would triumph over bad ideas, that that, that real information would triumph over disinformation. And, and that, that process could only play out in an enlightened society where a speech was as open and as free as possible. And when I say that he was naive, what... What I'm saying, in effect, is that a hundred plus or a hundred so years ago, he was incapable of imagining a time that had the that had the magnitude of disinformation that pours out now. He was he was incapable of imagining a time when um, free speech could be hijacked, or at least speech could be hijacked by people who simply were putting out lies, um, but were able to do it effectively enough. Uh, and repeatedly enough that it, it won wide acceptance. Um, the the very idea that speech alone uh, would protect you from dishonesty in government or dishonesty, period, um, and that it it was enough to secure democratic freedom was a naive notion. And 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 that's what I say. And 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 that's what I mean when I say that he looked at it from a naive perspective. He his his faith in speech seem to be grander than, than the reality. Along those lines, um, we have this recent situation with E. Jean Carroll um, mm-hmm. sued the president for uh, libel. Can one person's free speech lead to another's charge of libel? And where does the government come into this? Because uh, currently uh, I'm wondering what the principal limits on the right to speak or write free from government interference are. Sure. Oh, well, of course you can sue. Uh, well, 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 the well, the government has an exemption from being sued for libel, so that's that's that's, that's a little bit different. But of course you can sue individuals um, for for libel. You know, and the um, I guess you know the involvement of Barr and the Justice Department in this case, um, the um, you know has less to do with libel law than it has to do. With um, his with this argument that the fest, that the president was carrying out his official duties in whatever uh, uh, denying that he raped they, a woman, yes, yeah, well, well, they're not saying that he's his official duty is to rape people, but he was saying that there was a response to the suit. He was where he called her basically a liar. He was he was um, going he was he was carrying out his official duty, but but in answer to your you know to your question about whether libel. Um, is is uh, is protected. Um, the sort of uh, seminal decision on that was the uh, was the New York Times v. Sullivan case, um, and that was in 1964. 
And what that case revolved around was an ad that had been taken out in the New York Times. I believe it may appear in other papers as well, but it was, but it was in the New York Times by a group that was trying to raise funds for Reverend Martin Luther King you know, and um, his movement. And the, um, the leadership at that time um, in Alabama had decided that uh, you know, they didn't like that. And part of the, of the way that they were trying to uh, raise funds was by just giving a history of what uh, difficulties and, and repression the movement had been through in the South. And they talked about the sheriff, you know, and they talked about the arrest of, of various people. They, they, they talked about um, being um, threatened in various ways. And they essentially, they essentially described the events that it led them to, one, decide that the movement was necessary, and two, um, to um, look for, um, yeah, to, you know, to look for, for assistance in that movement. The officials in the state decided, uh, oh, hey, you know, they're criticizing us, you know, the, the police uh, chief and others, and, and they're lying about us. Uh, there were some minor inaccuracies in the ad, and so they seized on 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 those inaccuracies, but also seized on the entire narrative to go to court. And they originally won, you know, in state court, um, and 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 winning, got these huge um, libel settlements, these 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 huge judgments against these poor black ministers, and also against the New York Times. Um, and they seized cars, they seized property um, as a result of this, and that ended up being appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court at that point basically said it's very hard to, to libel public officials um, and that you had to show um, you know, blatant disregard for, for truth um, and and you had to essentially know that you were lying and to, and to decide to do it anyway in order to to libel a public official in that context and on on that basis you know tossed out that case and ended up saving the um, the cars and and the property of the, of the ministers but also gave the gave the press a huge opening because prior to that Part of because part of the suit also was against the New York Times, um, and because the Southern politicians at that point wanted to shut down coverage of the civil rights movement, uh, they wanted to silence the press, and they were and we're talking about million dollar settlements, which in which in those days you know was real money, uh, significant enough you know to or million dollar judgments I should say significant enough to be an impediment even to a major newspaper institution at that time, and certainly to, to small newspapers. So, so that's considered a, a huge victory for, for press freedom, which, which goes back to part of your first question, which was when did we begin to recognize the right to uh, freedom of the press and the right to free speech? Uh, well, um, I, I, this is not the appropriate moment to talk about it, but the Times has published uh, defamatory uh, information lies about me and they've been told that that's the case and they have done absolutely nothing to redress the situation but uh, I guess my my only option would be to go to the Supreme Court I'm not going to do that um, and I don't want to get into it right now yeah, but okay. <laughs> uh, 
But what about Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire, 1942, and the origin of the fighting words doctrine? Yeah. Um, as the court and as the nation sort of groped through dealing with the question of how much free speech is allowed and, and what is free speech, um, one of the cases that, that came that came up was this Chaplinsky case, um, who was uh, a fellow who was a Jehovah's Witness, um, and you know who I guess basically was doing street preaching of some sort, and um, was hassled by the cops and told to move on, or, or or basically told to you know desist from from what he was doing. And in response to the cop's prodding, he called the cop a name, and I don't remember what the name mm-hmm. was, but it, but it was but it was it, it was something that these days would be considered relatively mild. Um, but basically insulted the cop, and the cop ended up arresting him, and um, he ended up um, having to go to jail for a short time for insulting the cop. Mm-hmm. And and this case ended up before the Supreme Court, and the question was whether he had a free speech right to to call the cop a name, and 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 it wasn't even it was it it wasn't a Nazi, but it was something in that family of words where where he where he basically you told told the cop you know you're you are a um, an overbearing cop, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And this sounds like something that could have happened yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and the court basically said, you know, okay, you do. Well, we do have freedom of speech in this country, and, and you're and you're allowed to express your opinions on things. But there are certain words that are just so provocative and so incendiary that if you call people these kinds of names and, and if you denounce people in these in this way, um, uh, you are essentially inviting a fight, and those are fighting words. And you can't say these kinds of things in public because it's a violation of the of, of the peace and, and other people's rights. Um, the the irony is, and I wish I could remember the exact word that words that he used because I said they were fairly tame at this point. But the but the irony is um, that um, the the so called fighting words that he um, used are, are, are would not be considered fighting words today. And even though that case was never overturned, uh, it pretty it's it's pretty much become ignored throughout the years. And so, and, you know, and 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 so if you ignore even a cop uh, and 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 call them over overzealous or some synonym for overzealous, uh, odds are you know, you might get arrested, but you're not going to get convicted on that charge. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. My guest is Ellis Coase, whose latest book is The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America, published by uh, Amistad HarperCollins. Did this, uh, is this a follow-up in a way to your previous book, which was about the American Civil Liberties Union? Because we, the last time we talked uh, about that book, and we talked a lot about what happened in 1978 when the ACLU defended a Nazi group planning to march through Skokie, the, the largely Jewish suburb of Chicago where many Holocaust survivors lived. Uh, and uh, uh, the ACLU uh, went through a lot of controversy. But what did that incident mean to the history of the, the First Amendment? 
Um, it meant I guess there were three questions it, there. Well, I'm well, sorry. Well, 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 okay, yeah. I mean, it, it meant basically that hate speech was protected, but it, but this but this was but it was not a seminal decision. Um, the the you know, the court had effectively sort of, and 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 this is interesting because you're contrasting this with Chaplinsky. Um, and that's when I, and when I say that uh, Chaplinsky has, in large case, been ignored, uh, you would think that some of the hate speech that emerges from a Nazi march uh, would be fighting words, uh, and you might even you might even assume that the very appearance of, of Nazis in in a uh, in a suburb that has Holocaust survivors you know, is the equivalent of fighting words. Um, but the Supreme Court said no, that's not the case. That that you can't really squelch this speech. This is this, this is protected speech, and therefore these people have a right to um, you know a right to march. I mean the as as you know the march never took place. And the, the the small Nazi group uh, decided that they had better things to do that day, and they ultimately ended up having a march in Chicago instead. But the um, you, but the but the uh, ACLU um, got severely embarrassed. Um, yeah. Well, embarrassed is not the quite word. They got they, they got severely criticized for defending Nazis, and they had to make a, um, a a huge public explanation as to why they thought it was important uh, to do this. But you also ask another question, and and I think your question was whether um, this current book on free speech was somehow yeah. connected. To my previous book that came out a couple of months ago, which is the history of the ACLU, and the short answer is yes, and, but and connected in this way. Um, originally, as I was working on that book, I thought there were a lot of free speech questions that deserve some sort of separate separate treatment. And originally, I thought of perhaps doing that as a part of that book. And the more I thought about it, the more. I realize this is really a separate book, and it has certainly an intersection with the ACLU and the ACLU story, but it's but it's also a very different um, story. And the AELS and the ACLU story is, is is not just about free speech. So I decided the most sensible thing to do was to just do a separate book looking at that set of issues. Was the uh, the march in Charlottesville uh, another example of a, a free speech? issue or free speech or Very illegal much. assembly uh the marchers many of the marches were armed and as it turns out uh some people were injured and and three people were killed well 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 yeah two cops died uh, who yeah. were in, incidental to the march in the sense that they were um a part of the of the, of the cops who were overseeing surveilling the march and they ended and they died in a helicopter crash um, and yes, there was another woman um, who was protesting. A man, yeah, she, she he drove a car into her, into yeah. a crowd, and uh, killed uh, that young woman. Yeah, and and I and I and I, and I think you need to sort of unpack some of those issues um, to get at, at what the what the free speech issue was there. Um, there was this group, um, Unite the Right, I think they called themselves, that decided they were going to have a march in Charlottesville. And they had had, uh, or, or similar groups that had marches um, in Charlottesville as well, because they were concerned about the statue of Robert E. Lee, who was being taken down and and moved, and 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 and, and a park, and Robert E. Lee Park was being renamed, um, you know, um, Emancipation Park. Yeah, and so there, were, so there were uh, these 
um, white supremacist type people who are very bothered by this. They, you know, they're very bothered that a Confederate uh, war hero is is being dishonored, you know, and as they saw things, and they decided that they were going to have a march in Charlotte to um, express their unhappiness around this situation. And the city said, okay, now we, we've already had a couple of marches about this stuff, and we, we realize we cannot stop you from having a march, but we not, don't want you to march in the middle of town in this particular park. It's, it's a difficult place to police. Uh, there's a better place um, a bit further outside of town for you to have this, this march. And the, the Unite the Right group said, no, we want to have the march in, uh, in the prominent place where we want to have the march, and it's a free speech issue. And they got the local um, ACLU office, they went to the local ACLU office um, to get help. Um, and so the ACLU and Atlanta local organization, uh, which is an, another free speech type organization, defended the case in court. And they basically said the only reason you want to move this march you know, is because it's um, you don't like the content of this march, and you cannot make content-based content-based decisions on speech. And as a result, the city backed down. Uh, the, I mean, the judge ruled in the city's favor, and and rather in the ACLU's or the group's favor. And the city said, "Okay, fine, put on put on your march." Mm-hmm. Um, the re- result was. Disastrous. I mean, first of all, the march never really took place because, as you say, they, they were these groups. Many of them had guns, which actually is not against the law in Virginia. It's an open carry state, so you're allowed to carry guns, uh, which yeah, we can discuss the sanity of that. But, but, but the legal issue was not an issue, um, and the marchers were very aggressive. They were they were confronted with by anti-protesters who were also uh, unyielding, you know, and so the the situation became so ugly that the police decided, okay, this 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 is just too dangerous of a situation going on here. Uh, we can't, you know, this demonstration can't go on. You know, we've, we've we've crossed the line from what could be a demonstration to what could be a riot, uh, and so and so the police called off the riot, the or rather the quote, demonstration before it happened. And there was young. There was one young man who was an admirer of Adolf Hitler and who also was mentally disturbed, who drove his car uh, into a crowd of protesters, um, killing one woman, injuring um, over 30 more, and ultimately you know, was convicted of uh, both, both hate crime and, 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 uh, and murder. And is now spending a um, a life serving a lifetime sentence. I believe I believe two lifetime sentences. Ellis, uh, well, I have to go to a break in a few moments, but I wanted to address the the matter of the McCain-Feingold bipartisan campaign reform act. Sure. Why why isn't that considered an infringement on freedom of speech? Well, it was considered an infringement on on freedom of speech, and then and, and that was the whole basis of the Citizens United decision, um, which was a decision that came out in 2010. Um, which you're and, not very pleased with. You're not alone in criticizing it. 
Yeah. Um, well, it, it was it was a decision. And do, and do we have time to go into it? Or well, well, let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about Citizens United and sure. some other uh, things. Maybe we can get to the Electoral College. Uh, we'll get to Jessica Clark. Uh, uh, what some of the quotes you have from her. There's all sorts of really interesting stuff in this book, uh, and uh, I'm going to try to cover as much of it as I can. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and we're streaming live at WBAI.org. Stay with it's called free speech. It's called free speech. Something the Constitution guarantees. Some folks might be offended, but we all have to defend it if we truly want this country to be free. Fast forward now, a bunch of years, I'm driving cars and shifting gears. Guy stop short, I had to slam my brakes. Before we get back to my conversation with Ellis Coase, I wanted to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help WBAI survive the current economic crisis that we find ourselves in because of the pandemic. We need all of our listeners who are financially able to step up right now and go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's given, then the number two, WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. Again, the number is 516-620-3602, the website, give to WBAI.org. And uh, we hope that uh, you'll consider uh, supporting WBAI throughout the year uh, as a W, what we call a WBAI buddy. Uh, it's it which involves just a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month uh, and uh, and allowing us to have some cash flow. And it, it's a minimal amount for you, but it's really important because they, they can add up. Uh, BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here because they allow us to plan for the future and give our, our show some sense of security during these uncertain times. Uh, why not consider signing up as a buddy for other listeners who've had to suspend their uh, memberships due to financial hardships? Uh, becoming a BAI buddy is a wonderful way to just do that. And I'm, I'm so happy to announce that any listener who calls 516-620-3602 or goes to give to WBAI.org to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And you, you have to do it in the name of Leonard Lopate at, at large. By the end of today, uh, you'll receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Short Life and Curious Yet the Free Speech in America by my guest, Ellis Coase. But um, whether you do that or you give us a, another amount, whatever level you donate at, the important thing is that you step up and support this last remaining 100% listener-supported radio station on the New York radio dial. And please, again, be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us here at the station, thank you so much. And uh, now I'm going back to my guest, uh, Ellis Coase, who's latest book is a short life of curious and curious death of free speech in america published by amistad harper collins so we were just about to address the matter of uh, the um citizens united ruling uh, citizens united versus federal elections commission in 2010 which held that political messaging was protected speech under the first amendment um i'm sure many people uh, who read about it still are unsure about 
the details of that case. Can you give us a, a brief summary? Sure. I mean, basically, the Feingold um, laws, as you as you mentioned earlier, put restrictions uh, on the ability of large corporations and, and other independent entities uh, to um, run ads and to and and, and to pour and, and and to shovel money into campaigns. And yeah, they, they they had restrictions on how close to an election they they could do it, and also on the amount of money uh, that could be um, allocated, you know, to these purposes. And that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that um, you know they shouldn't have these restrictions, and that and what one of the more controversial aspects of this was they not only decided that that was within the free speech rights of uh, of corporations but they decided that corporations and also unions um were had the same free speech rights as you and I that that in terms of how they are cons- that they were basically individuals and 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 and, and that and that the um the congress could not pass laws that infringe on that speech, so it opened the way to all kinds of dark money coming into uh, campaigns. I mean, there were, you know, uh, or or if not directly into campaigns, coming into the political process on behalf of campaigns, on behalf of candidates, and it, and it's clear the way for advertising, uh, even very close to the election, mm-hmm. by these third parties that supposedly are independent, but that often, in often cases are actually connected indirectly uh, to the campaign in, in, in some ways. And many of these, these operations tend to be um, run by people who were formerly associated with the campaign and, and what have you. So, uh, but, one of, but one of the most interesting disagreements with this you know, came from uh, Justice Stevens, you know, who dissented to it. And basically said, this is preposterous. Yeah, corporations aren't people. They aren't persons. They can't. They, you know, they they don't vote. Uh, they don't have standing. You know, in, in the same way that citizens do. So, so how can you say that in regards to this kind of issue, a corporation, which is the the uh, narrow reflection of whoever runs this corporation, uh, is equivalent to a human being, um, and the the majority said uh, under under the Roberts court said no we are we we can say this we declare that for this purpose uh, corporations are individuals they're people they're basically human beings um, and why but aren't unions uh, limited by federal laws in a way that corporate spending is not I'm, I'm sorry oh, oh yeah oh, I, I, I didn't hear what you were saying but you were saying that unions are um, yeah yeah I, I mean I mean well, what's the difference there there's a huge difference between unions and um, and corporations, but that but that was not a distinction that the Supreme Court was interested in making. But what they what they basically were deciding is that institutional speech uh, is as protected as individual speech. Uh, and so, if you have a, a nonprofit organization that is allowed to take positions, if you have a union that wants to take positions. Uh, or if you have a company that wants to take positions on, and, and, and pour money into political campaigns and, and advocate on behalf of, of, of um, political candidates, even um, right before the election, which is, which is one of the restrictions that the Feingold Act had placed on these, on, on these types of advertisements. And would, have, uh, and would have applied to the situation at hand, which was a movie 
right. about uh, Senator Hillary Clinton, who was then a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. Uh, Barack Obama wound up with that nomination. Uh, but uh, according to the Citizens United, Section 203 of of the uh, Feingold Act, it, it, it violated First Amendment right to free speech, both on its face and as it applied to Hillary, the movie. Uh, so uh, I don't know if anybody ever saw that movie. It was an ad um, for you know for for this like as you say for the, for this movie and I'm and, and I don't think it was in general distribution I I think it had some kind of limited um, distribution so it was, so it was more the issue that was getting decided you know than you know this was, this was not a some movie that was going to debut on the network on any mm-hmm. major network or anything um, but it was it was really a device to get into this whole question of um, what right. The federal government had to intervene on the issue of speech, and and it, and it created some you know some interesting bedfellows. I mean, the ACLU was actually in support of that Supreme Court decision uh, on the grounds that they also don't think that free speech ought to be uh, ought to be silenced. Uh, a lot of other people, including several former legal directors with the ACLU, said that's that's crazy. You know, you know, the, you know, the 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 very idea uh, of Considering corporations, people essentially means that you are giving a, a, a much greater advantage to those who are rich, who are wealthy, who can afford to um, do these things than they are to individuals. So you're so you're making them not equal to to ordinary mm-hmm. citizens. You're making them superior in, in their ability to to influence events more superior than they than they are naturally. To uh, individual citizens, so so that that debate rages on. It, it, it was not a um, uniform um, consensus, even within some free speech organizations that came out for it. That it was that it was good law, and 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 I says, and 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 it, it it would not have happened under a different kind of court. So so it so it shows you something, you know, as we all know about how the composition of, of a particular court can very much influence what policies they come up with. You write, I'm quoting you, we have brought the worst values of advertising into the political sphere and wedded that to long-established tactics of political propaganda, even as our political class has learned to use social media to spread disinformation that propagates at a breathtaking rate. The very idea that political speech would expose and therefore vanquish falsehood and fallacies now seems incredibly naive. But... Um, the, the the debate continues as to what's acceptable to post on social media. Well, I think you you have a lot of issues that are that sort of come together there. I mean, one is just, and and it relates to what we we're just talking about the, you know, the the impact of all of this money that washes into politics now. Um, it gives you the ability to create your own reality. Um, it gives you the ability to run ads that on their face. And then this has been a big dispute with with the ads that, that are um, running um, on on Facebook. I mean, it gives you uh, you know the great ability to run ads that are outright lies. Right um, now in Florida, Joe Biden is being accused of being a, a puppet of the communists, and actually, I think there's an ad that suggests that he's a pedophile. He, be, has, uh, he has no defense against that. Um, he could. He may. He may very well have a have a defense against a pedophile ad. But yeah. But 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 in general, you don't. You know. Um, 
and the um, the the ability of truth to break through that um, is not very high in some instances. I mean, you, you know, this is not advertising we're talking about, but just look at how the whole question of what's happening with COVID-19 and the wearing of masks has become a political issue. And, 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 and if you look at what's believed, um, depending on political party, you believe a whole different set of things. Uh, Republicans tend to believe it's not nearly as serious as Democrats do. Republicans tend to believe as a group you know, that you don't need to wear masks nearly to the extent that Democrats do. It has nothing to do with what's true and what's not true. It has to do with a message that's targeting particular audiences, uh, and that is getting them to believe things that in many cases are, are the exact opposite of the facts. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and it goes back you know, to, the, to the Kerry race. You know, um, and the 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 John Kerry race I'm talking about yeah. when he was running for running for president, you know, and the Swift Boat campaign, which was based on total BS, on total lies, and it took a an actual war hero and turned him into a villain, it turned him into a coward, um, and it was so persuasive that it was partly responsible for him not winning that race in the minds of many people. Because the fact of the matter is, as much as um, someone like Brandeis would want to think that we're smart enough to see the truth and we're smart enough to choose the truth, often we're not. And especially when the lies are very cleverly marketed, uh, when, you can, when, you, when you can generate fake videos that look like the real thing you know, and, and show events you know, that never actually happened. Um, and edit photographs uh, and photographs of, of, of mm. people doing things that they never did. Um, and then accompany those with a narrative. I mean, this, you know, and, and you mentioned this, I, I, and I'm not aware exactly what the specific charges are of the advertising in Florida with the Biden campaign, but you certainly had that narrative growing out of these fringe right wing groups about Hillary Clinton and her and her and other Democrats running a pedophile ring, you know, mm. and drinking and, blood. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, it reached the point where one fellow showed up in Washington, D.C., armed, uh, thinking he was going to protect, you know, apparently some some children you know, from this from this so-called pedophile ring. Um, this is dangerous territory. And, and we have this more and more um, influence, you know, more and more sort of representing what happens in certain parts of, of of the internet and in and, and even the uh, things like the Christchurch um, murders yeah. in New Zealand or the Dylan Thomas the not Dylan Thomas the Dylan roof roof murders you know in South Carolina uh, on, in the black church uh, to some extent to a large extent it seems um, a lot of the inspiration for those violent acts came from misinformation or, or propaganda that was widely circulated on the internet. So it's 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 given new urgency to a whole set of discussions around to what extent and whether yeah. and how you know internet speech ought to be regulated. But also going back to your original question about about the about advertising and big corporations and whatnot. Uh, at, at this point, it's pretty established law that corporations can advertise very broadly and widely, and 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 
and without a whole lot of restrictions uh, in support of political candidates. But I think in terms of society resolving these issues, it's far from resolved. And, and there will be another Supreme Court at some point. There will be, there will be other cases. There will be another look taken at these issues because they go to the heart of what we are as a democracy. Now we have uh, phrases like post-truth and fake news that pop up all the time. Uh, my favorite, of course, is Stephen Colbert's truthiness. But uh, they, they kind of suggest that we, we are living at a time where we should not really believe what we're told. You said uh, that truth in public speech has been an issue since the founding. Is it different today? Uh, yes, it is different today. I mean, the, from, the, from the beginning, uh, politicians, uh, congressmen, uh, senators have have had an exemption uh, from having to tell the truth on on the floor of Congress. You know, it was it was it was decided that in in the interest of open and honest speech, um, that was it was necessary to, to allow the people on the floor of Congress, uh, congressional members, to say uh, whatever they wanted to say. Um, but yes, in, in, in answer to the question of speech in general, has have things changed? They've changed for lots of reasons, but one of the big reasons they've changed is that the reach of media has changed. I mean, television didn't exist in 1787, obviously. Uh, radio didn't exist back then. The the advertising industry the didn't exist back then. Uh, the The idea that you could use mass advertising to to sway public opinion was not a thing, you know, from from the founding. So, so these were issues that, for obvious reasons, didn't even get considered um, when we were you know, founding this nation. And um, but they're but they're huge issues now, you know. And when when I talk about uh, advertising, I mean advertising in large measure is untruth. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's basically trying to convince you that one product is better or different than another, uh, when in many respects, and in most cases, they're not that different. Uh, it, it's, it's trying to convince you that by driving a particular car, you know, you, you will become a different kind of person by wearing a, different, by, by wearing a perfume or a set of clothes. Uh, you will be perceived in a different way, that you will be more successful if you buy this particular product. Um, mostly, that's not true. Um, but they have honed a, a set of techniques that are totally designed to convincing people that they're true. Of course, then they, uh, people drink the new Coke and they discover that they didn't like it. But uh, we have very little time left. Uh, I do want to address one important other thing, although there are so many other things that I'd love to be able to talk with you. You'd think an hour would be enough time. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the so-called cancel culture in academia right. for some years now, and more recently in the mainstream press with some high-profile firings and resignations. And you write, Quote, disinviting speakers and hijacking events are rude things to do, but when conservative groups intentionally invite the most offensive and grating speakers they can find, they're not exactly surprised that certain more progressive classmates take the bait. Indeed, that's what they hope for, since the real objective is to make the other side come off as weak, intolerant, troubled snowflakes. So um, I, I know that's a really fair argument when you're talking about somebody like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. But what about the scholars and thinkers who are who are respected on the right, if not the left? 
Sure, or or, or Ann Coulter. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I think, and 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 I mean, we just had a Republican. Heather McDonald. Yeah, <laughs> we just had a Republican convention a couple of weeks ago, and you had you know at least seven or eight speakers talking about cancel culture and them blaming liberals for not being tolerant of free speech and, and proclaiming themselves the free speech party. So, so there's a lot of political gamesmanship going on here. Um, I mean, the, uh, you, so, so you have on one hand uh, the president of the United States who shuts down a protest of peaceful um, demonstrators in D.C., uh, violently shuts down a protest so he, so he can march to a church with a Bible, and then, then on the other hand claiming that, he, that his party is the party of free speech. Uh, and, and, and he actually exec, you know, issues an executive order stemming out of the uh, event with Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, at the University of California, which ended up being shut down because of violence. I mean, the university didn't shut it down. There was violent protests and fires in the campus, and they ended up having to shut it down. And 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 Yiannopoulos people, were, you know, started shouting about cancel culture. They were being canceled. Uh, the university ended up spending millions of dollars on insecurity to you know to protect them, uh, and this just becomes. A um, you know a big public event you know and and that has little to do with free speech as it's normally understood. I mean, no one's keeping Milo Yiannopoulos for the most part from speaking, of course. Um, and yeah, you know, or, or that, for that matter, Ann Coulter, and and they wanted to make it make a thing of it. But but yes, it, it is it is an issue on on many campuses. But part of what I say in the book is that it's and and, and yes, there are excesses in places, and 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 I think we have to acknowledge that. Um, but part of what I say in the book is that, that this is largely self-correcting. Um, I mean, the universities do, for the most part, um, have some value on free speech and academic freedom, and um, they try to protect it. I mean, University, University of Chicago, a couple of years ago, issued a set of rules that a lot of the universities have now basically subscribed to, is explicitly saying they're not going to shut down you know, speech on campus. The uh, so I don't think it's exactly a false issue. I think there are cases where uh, people have overstepped, um, but that gets into a much larger question, which is how well do we understand what free speech is? And and even though over ninety percent of Americans say we support free speech, you also have forty percent of the Americans who say it's perfectly okay for the president to shut down CNN or the New York Times if they act in ways. That they don't like, you know. So it's so so so. There's a lot of contradictory, not a lot of contradictions, you know, in how we look at this issue, and and a lot of misunderstanding. And and one of the reasons that I actually wrote the book was that I thought a um, a primer that's easy to understand, you know, on free speech uh, is something that we could stand to have, you know, in this, in this country at this point. Now, uh, I have no time left, but you, you worked at Newsweek for 17 years. Did you leave when Rupert Murdoch bought it, or did you see firsthand some of this stuff in action? Uh, well, Rupert Murdoch didn't, didn't buy it. Um, what what happened, um, Newsweek is, is got sold to Harmon, you know, the guy who um, made the speakers for, for the um, stereos years ago. Mm-hmm. And he was a big, big multimillionaire. And, and then, Harmon Cardin. But but anyway, I won't I won't belabor that story. But to make a long story short, now I mean the, the 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 editorial leadership was changing. The magazine that I worked for for 17 years 
was no longer uh, what Newsweek was. Uh, the, the values were changing. It was just taking going in a very different direction. So I decided it was time it was time to leave. Thank you so much for being on our show today, and uh, you're always welcome to come back. Ellis Coase, his latest book, The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America, published by Amistad HarperCollins. What a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And that uh, pretty much brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Jessica Ramey, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available as an iTunes podcast, or you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If there's anything that you would like to tell me about one of our shows, or if you'd simply like to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult situation right now because of the pandemic. So if you value the the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we are able to bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., We hope that you will call 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give2wbai.org right now to help keep this 100% listener-sponsored station alive on the New York Metropolitan Area radio dial. And if your membership has has lapsed and you forgot to renew, we hope that you will do it because we're powered by your generosity alone. And and a reminder that if you would like to receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America, by my guest Ellis Coase, sign up today to become a BAI buddy, and we'll be happy to send you it for free as our way of saying thanks for supporting the programming we bring you every day on Leonard Lopate at Large. You can find out all about it. Uh, at give2wbai.org by calling 516-620-3602. But remember that you have to say that you're doing it in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when economist Mark Levinson will discuss his new book called Outside the Box, How Globalization Changed from Moving Stuff to Spreading Ideas. I hope to see you then.